Great. I mean, on, on these kind of weekends, or I keep calling it a weekend, I know it's Tuesday, isn't it? But, you know, uh, these getaways, often the speaker begins by saying, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm aware that almost none of you invited me. Um, it was um, Scott who got me here, I think, um, because I owed him a weekend. I hadn't realised that since um, the weekend that got cancelled, I was meant to do for him, he'd actually swapped churches and jobs. Um, so he's, uh, yeah. Uh, and it turns out he's not even here. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you can read into that for yourselves. Um, we are going to look at Leviticus. So if you could turn that, but actually, as you turn up Leviticus 1, you'll find yourself in the right place for where we're going to start, which is actually the end of Exodus. We won't, fairly obviously, over the next three days, be able to cover the whole book of Leviticus. We're going to focus on the first ten chapters. And I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 40 of Exodus, and then a little bit of chapter 1 of Leviticus. Just to set the scene in terms of where we are, um, the, the, the Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt by now, so if you know the story of the Exodus, they're slaves, they're set free, they've done all of going through the Red Sea, they're at Mount Sinai, and God has given the law, the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Covenant, those other laws that we get very confused about, about not eating goats bald in their mother's milk and all that. Uh, and we've just had, at the back end of the book of Exodus, a huge description of how the tabernacle is to be built. More on that in a moment. But let's, let's hear the word of the Lord from uh, Exodus 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and shall put uh, in it the Ark of the Testimony, that's the Ark of the Covenant, and you shall screen the Ark with a veil and you shall bring in the table and arrange it and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tab- tabernacle of the tent of meeting And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. And put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around. And hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Now the rest of the chapter then explains. Moses does all that God commanded him. Let's pick it up at verse 34. So the whole temple is set up. Moses has finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the Lord was not, if the cloud, sorry, was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And straight on, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, 
And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of chapter 1 um, basically repeats the same process with different animals. We'll go into why different animals uh, a bit later, but the same process. So Leviticus, there's lots of strange stuff in Leviticus you don't need me to tell you. We're not going to cover it all by any means. And I don't pretend to understand the whole of Leviticus. Some of that is because of my ignorance. There's just lots I don't know. And some of it because, frankly, there are times when it's just a bit weird and wonderful. One of the things you don't get in Leviticus is much divine commentary. In other words, you don't get a sacrifice or an offering described and then the narrator or Moses or and the Lord said, coming along and saying, now the reason they did this was, and then explaining the significance. Um, that shouldn't make us despair. Okay, there's lots we can dig out of it. I hope there'll, there'll be much more in it than you might expect. But it does mean there'll be times when, um, I hope at least, uh, our sessions together will, will provoke you to go away and say, huh, I, I hadn't seen that before, and what do you think about that? And there'll be opportunity, I'm sure, for plenty of discussion, and dare I even say it, disagreement on times. But let me just say a few things on why Leviticus to start with, other than Scott was on a class I was teaching uh, a year and a half ago in Crossman's. Uh, why Leviticus? First, the first most obvious reason is it's God's word, isn't it? I mean, that's just the, the bargain basement reason. Um, have you ever seen those, those red letter Bibles where they put the, the words of Jesus, if he's speaking directly in red? Uh, if, if you did that with the Old Testament and put the sort of direct speech of the Lord in red, then virtually all of Leviticus will be red letter. In other words, almost all of Leviticus is direct speech by God. Now, I know theologically the whole Bible is the word of God. It's not that someone's greater than the other, anything like that. But it is striking. There is more direct speech, more red letter, if you like, in Leviticus than there is even in the Gospels. And so to approach Leviticus with that, uh-oh, it's a bit of a boring book, if we're really blunt about it, is approaching God's, one of God's longest ever speeches and saying, God, it's a bit dull. Uh, in fact, this book um, is the centre, or was the centre, of Old Testament Israelite life. Uh, it's the centre of the, the Pentateuch, pretty obviously. So uh, you, you probably know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Leviticus is in the middle. And it's in the middle not just because it's the third of five. Uh, but it's in the middle deliberately. We won't do loads of kind of literary stuff because it gets a bit dull. But, but if you look at the first and the fifth books, so Genesis and Deuteronomy, they kind of match up in some ways. So, for example, both of them end with, with patriarchs, great figures, blessing the tribes of Israel. Genesis ends with Jacob blessing the 12 sons, remember that? Deuteronomy ends with, with Moses pronouncing blessings on the 12 tribes. If you come into the books that sandwich Leviticus, um, Exodus and Numbers, they're about kind of wandering through the desert. They kind of match onto each other. And right in the middle of them is Leviticus. And indeed, right in the middle of Leviticus is um, the Day of Atonement. 
Okay, which is one of the passages we're not going to look at at all, but I guess you know most about. If you know one thing about Leviticus, it's probably the Day of Atonement. And it is no accident that the Day of Atonement is right at the centre of the central book of the Torah. And it was, therefore, the, the first book that Jewish children would, would learn. Because it actually shaped their whole lives. They needed to know Leviticus to know what they could and couldn't eat, what they could and couldn't wear. wear. Leviticus set their, their calendar both weekly and monthly and yearly and even kind of grand scales or patterns of seven years and 49 years and so on. Uh, it regulated their, their worship. It regulated their holidays. Their whole life revolved around Leviticus. And in that sense, and I realise this might be an illustration that kind of doesn't land as well north of the border, but it's a bit like cricket. Okay? I'm not a famous Scottish sport, I realise, but um, it's a bit like cricket. It, cricket is a totally baffling game if, you, if you've never played it. Okay. So you take, you know, I've got some American friends, just moved to Leeds, took them to the cricket. They have not got a clue what is going on. And you're trying to explain, well, you're trying to throw the little ball, it's trying to hit those sticks. Um, uh, and if it does, then the guy's, you know, the batter's out, he's got to go away. And then the guy throws the ball and it hits the guy's leg and he walks off. And the American's like, what? didn't hit the sticks. You're like, well, no, if you use your leg, you can't do that. That means you're out too. And so the guy throws the ball and it hits the leg. And this time he doesn't leave. Well, it's got a bouncing line with the stumps. And it's just mind-blowingly difficult to get your head around if you're not used to it. But if you've grown up with it, it's just obvious, simple, natural. Sport of kings. <laughs> well, associated with Leviticus, coming into it, as I guess most of us are, as Gentiles, non-Jews, who haven't had it um, taught to us from our earliest days. It, it, it is a perplexing book. But actually, it's, it's not such a difficult book if you've grown up not just being taught it, having it preached to you, but you've grown up living it. And almost more than any other book in the whole Old Testament, this was a, a book that shaped life. Now, that's significant for us, not because we're going to follow the practices. Obviously, we're not Jews, we're not Israelites. We live in the new covenant, not the old but about two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament, isn't it? So if we're going to understand the Old Testament well, that's only going to be helped by a deep understanding of Leviticus. And that also means, finally, just by way of introduction, that Leviticus is going to help us understand the world of Jesus far better. Jesus, in some ways, understand this rightly, is an Old Testament prophet, an Old Testament king, an Old Testament priest. He comes on stage to bring in the new covenant, but the new covenant doesn't start until his death and resurrection and, and Pentecost. And so he, the, the, the world he walks onto, the scenery, if you like, is Levitical scenery. So to give you just, just one example, um, you'll know that time and again, Jesus heals lepers. Now, if you don't know anything about Leviticus and you get to a story of Jesus healing a leper, what, what are you going to think? Probably what you're going to think is, wow, there is a medical miracle. There's a guy who's got some sort of leprosy, skin disease. Jesus touches him and it's gone. And so we think, well, you know, what's the relevance for me today? We might, I'm going to touch on a bit of this later. But we might think at a very simplistic level, well, there is a God who one day can make the sick healthy. I know it's not necessarily going to be an immediate promise for me. It's going to be maybe when I die or when Christ returns. But there is a, a God who can make the sick healthy. Now, that's true. But actually to a Jew who'd brought up, knowing Leviticus, seeing a leper... He wasn't so much seeing someone who was medically unwell as someone who was ceremonially unclean. And so the significance of Jesus healing a leper 
is found not so much in the medical miracle, but in the cleansing that it symbolises. It's one very small example, but it, it, it's a little picture of how Leviticus sets the scenery, sets the backdrop for understanding the world of the Gospels. And so again, I hope it's one of the side benefits of these few days, is that in some ways our understanding of the Gospels and the work of Christ uh, is enriched. I perhaps want to say these are going to be not quite sermons, I hope they're not lectures, but they're sort of somewhere, they're kind of seminars, talk, that it, I don't quite know what they are. Uh, but what I hope they are, at least, is a, a digging deep into the book of Leviticus. So in some sessions will be more kind of sermony, application-y, how does this move our hearts. Sometimes we'll be a bit more just trying to get things straight in our heads because it is slightly unknown uh, waters. Uh, but I hope over the course of the full sessions we'll, we'll have a good, good balance of everything. So let's dive in uh, to the text proper. And I want to suggest to you that Leviticus is a story. It can read as a book of rules, but Leviticus is a story. It begins, if we were translating very literally, um, the first Hebrew words are, and he called. So we read the Lord called Moses, because translating into English and we're trying to make it all tidy. But literally it's, and he called. Now if you read a story that begins, and he called, you know, the first page of a a new book, and he called. Instantly you're asking questions, aren't you? Who's he? Who's he calling to? And what do you mean, and? You don't, you know, you get taught at primary school, don't you? Don't start a sentence with and, let alone a book. What do you mean, and? What's he just been doing? So as we start Leviticus, its very first words make us ask, well, who is this we're talking about, and what has he just been doing? Now, the who is pretty obvious, the Lord God, isn't it? This is Yahweh. But what has he just been doing? On your sheets here, we're onto the section, uh, a garden in the wilderness. Two things God has just been doing. He's just built a house. Exodus 40. On the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The whole point of the Exodus, as I'm sure you know, was not just to get God's people out of slavery, but to get God dwelling with his people again. It wasn't just setting them free from Egypt so they could just disperse around the Middle East. But it was reuniting them with their God. And so as they come out of the promised land, they, 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 they head, with a few twists and turns, to Mount Sinai. And you remember in Exodus 19 and the chapters that follow, God meets his people at Sinai. This great glory cloud comes down. Something's called the Shekinah glory cloud. Comes down on the top of the mountain and there they worship him and that's where they are when all the action of Leviticus takes place okay, so we're never going to move geographically from the foot of Mount Sinai throughout the whole book of Leviticus and at this mountain a large part of the instruction is about building the tabernacle now I, I am terrible with um, computers and graphic design and all the rest of it but you've got on the inside of your sheets this diagram um, which is the best I can do. Surprisingly hard to find a good diagram of Tabernacle Online, so that's my best attempt. It would be really helpful to be able to see that at different places uh, during our, our days. Uh, you'll see that the God has built a three-roomed house. Technically, the tabernacle is just a bit in the middle. We tend to refer to the whole thing as a tabernacle. I've labelled that whole diagram tabernacle, but technically, it's the inner sort of curtain, the inner rectangle that is the tabernacle. But in sort of more colloquial speak we tend to refer to the whole thing and you'll see there are three rooms 
Again, this might be familiar territory for, for, for some of you. In the centre is the most holy place. That's a, a box. It's as wide as it is tall as it is broad. It's a total perfect cube. One step out, there's the holy place. Not most holy, but just holy. That is uh, as wide as it is high, but it's twice the length. The, 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 the um, dimension double. And then outside that again, you're in the courtyard. It's the third room. Why three rooms? Why has God set up a three-roomed tent? Well, it's also with where they are, Sinai. At Mount Sinai, there are three zones. And depending on who you are, you can go into one of these three zones. So at the bottom of Mount Sinai, at the foot of the mountain, is Israel. Now, to, to, to be at the foot of the mountain, you have to be in Israel. You have to be one of God's people. There was no approaching if you're an Amalekite or an Egyptian or anything else. But in that bottom zone <coughs> are the kind of bog standard, you and me, the bog standard Israelites. But you might remember that God calls some of the leaders, the elders of Israel, together with Moses and Aaron, up the mountain. So the leaders of God's people, Moses and Aaron, and the elders, 24 elders, go about halfway up the mountain. And then Moses alone is called right up the top into the glory cloud. Moses alone goes into the highest zone. So Sinai is, if you like, a three-story mountain. Ordinary Israelite leaders, and then right at the top, Moses, uh, the great mediator. And the tabernacle is meant to reflect that. Uh, hence the three areas. The courtyard, where any Israelite could go. Not any Amalekite or Hittite, or just the, just the Israelite. But any Israelite could go into the courtyard. And we'll see, that's where lots of the sacrifices, about all the sacrifices take place in that, in that courtyard. But then there's the middle zone where just the leaders can go, the priests. So the priests alone can go into the holy place. And then in the most holy place, sometimes called the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go. In fact, he could only go in once a year. So do you see how it maps on to Sinai? Three zones. In that sense, and this is going to be really important, the tent is like a three-storey tent. Now, you can't make a three-storey tent, can you? In the desert, you can't. Staircases and all the rest of it. But symbolically, it is three stories. In other words, the, the, the courtyard is the ground floor, and then you go up to the holy place, and then up again to the most holy place, like Sinai. That's even reflected in the, in the way the thing is built. Again, like, we didn't have time to read all the details because it would have taken us all afternoon. But to give you just one example, um, these obviously aren't walls. These are, these are curtains that can construct the tent. And there are great poles that hold them up. If you were on the outside, you would see that the poles that hold up the outer curtain, okay, around the courtyard, their feet are bronze. But at the top, the kind of hooks that hold the, the, the curtain in place are silver. If you were to head into the courtyard and look at the curtain that surrounds um, the whole kind of tabernacle proper, you'd see that the bases, the feet, are silver. And the tops are gold. And you might see that in the most holy place, absolutely everything is gold. So it's almost like the kind of like the Olympic podium, bronze, silver, gold. To, to picture this idea that you're ascending, as it were, as you go further and further into the tabernacle. You're getting closer and closer to God at the top of the mountain, as it were. 
there's all sorts of other things that the furniture gets kind of better metals get bronze going up to gold and all the rest of it but it's a three-story diagram that's going to be really important for understanding the offerings and sacrifices god has built this house and he's also furnished it we've touched on this a bit already what do you do with an empty house you furnish it don't you endless tv shows uh, to make it your own you don't just want white walls you want furnishings and so each room has its own furnishing. Again, it's all there in Exodus 40. Uh, in the central room, the most holy place, the top of the mountain, is just one bit of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, as it's called in the ESV. Elsewhere, this is called the, the footstool, God's footstool. It is, symbolically, the, kind of, the place where heaven and earth meet. God is sat in the heavens and his feet are resting in the most holy place. This is the the throne room. Uh, The living room, God's living room as it were. Come out a step to the holy place. And here there's much more furniture. Everything's gold here because it's it's, it's close to God. There's an altar, an altar of incense that sits just in front of the entrance to the most holy place. And on that altar there's no sacrificing taking place. No animals are killed there or anything like that. But incense is perpetually burned. Uh, there's a table with 12 loaves of bread, sometimes called the showbread or the bread of the presence. There's a candlestick that's shaped like a tree um, that burns in a way. And it's a sort of funny candlestick. It kind of casts its light onto the bread. Um, little kind of reflector things that make it shine on the bread. Uh, that, if you like, is the kind of dining room. Okay, you've got the table, the bread, the candlestick, um, the sweet smells kind of thing. You, you know, your mum burns the stinky candles to make the room smell nice, that kind of thing. And then you come out one further room to the courtyard, and we're in the, we're in the kitchen. There's a bronze altar. That's where all the sacrifices are going to take place, the actual killing of the animals. And there's this huge basin, a bronze basin, a sea full of water. Again, you see how the metals get less impressive? The whole thing gets less impressive as you move away further from God. What's going on? Why has God built and furnished a house like this? Two things I'd suggest to you. First of all, it's to remind them where they've come from. Imagine you're a priest walking to work. The whole tabernacle setup reminds you where you've come from. It reminds you, particularly as you move away from Sinai, you head off on your journeys through the desert and eventually get set up in the, in the promised land. And indeed, this becomes the pattern for the temple, the physical brick-built stone temple. It reminds you of the rescue that you've experienced. So you come in, you always come in the same way through that east entrance. There's only one way in. What's the first thing you see? You see the bronze altar, the place of sacrifice. As you move on, you get to the sea, the basin, the water. And as you move on, if you're a priest, you can keep going. You get into the tabernacle proper, the the dwelling place of God. Those are the stages of Israel's rescue in the Exodus. How did the Exodus begin? It began with the shedding of blood, the great sacrifice, the Passover. What was the next stage for Israel after the Passover? They go out of the land, but they have to cross the Red Sea through the waters. And where do they end up? They end up at Mount Sinai, the place of God's presence, meeting with God. So just the physical furniture of the tabernacle tells the story of the Exodus. And some of you might already be realising it also tells, prophetically, in picture form, in shadow form, that the story of the Gospel how is it that you are a believer today? What is your, your journey to faith? Well, all of us have got our, you know, our 
grew up in a Christian home or I had a Christian friend at school or I went on a summer camp. We've got those sort of stories. But but ultimately our stories are the same. We we are saved, first of all, by the great sacrifice, the blood of Christ, the true Passover lamb. That is the beginning of every Christian's story. The lamb of God was slain for us. What comes to those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb? Well, a washing. I mean, there's a symbolic one in baptism, but also, but ultimately, the washing, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Water in the Old Testament, time and again, and that cleansing is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work. And so, those who are forgiven because of the blood of the Lamb, slowly over the course of their life, are washed clean. Won't finish until you die or Christ returns, but it's a washing, a cleansing. And it's all headed towards what? Well, it's all headed towards the great day when we meet God face to face. When we enter his presence. It reminds them where they've come from. So as Israel gathered to worship, and Hebrews talks about the activity of the tabernacle as, as worship. As Israel gathered to worship, or the priests came to lead a worship, uh, worship festival, or Sabbath, or whatever it may be. Their worship was picturing the gospel. And again, there already might be little seeds of thoughts on how that might suggest what our worship ought to look like as we gather week by week. It shows them where they've come from, but it also shows them where they're going. This tabernacle is not just a reminder of the Exodus, but also of the first book of the Bible, of Genesis. Uh, the goal of God's redemption, God's great saving act, of course, was never just meant to be a tent in the desert. This was a stage on the journey. The great goal is God and his people reunited. And you'll know the story of the Bible begins with God and his people together in Eden, in this wonderful garden. And what I want to suggest to you, it's certainly not my ideas, but those who study this a lot more deeply than I have, is that this tabernacle is meant to be a picture of Eden as well. Not just a story of the gospel, but a picture of Eden. Uh, we see it in how it's made. Again, if, we had, if we'd read for about 40 minutes from Exodus 23 onwards, that the story of the construction of the tabernacle, we'd have read God giving the instructions to the tabernacle in seven speeches. Okay, you get the structure, seven speeches. It's not just one long speech, which it could have been. God could have just explained it in one speech. But very deliberately, it's in seven speeches to echo the seven days of creation. And in fact, the seventh speech in Exodus... Is all about the Sabbath. It's like the seventh day in creation. It's God's word that is recreating his dwelling place. It's as God speaks that his dwelling place comes to be. And again, zoom forward. It's the same, isn't it? It's as God speaks, his true dwelling place, the church, is formed. But anyway, we're doing these echoes of Eden. It's, it's formed in seven steps. When's it made? Exodus 40, verse 1 and 2. God is very specific about when Moses is allowed to go and make this tabernacle. It's not, look, I've told you how to do it. Now, whenever you're ready, crack on. Exodus 40, 1 and 2. God spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month. And then when Moses goes into action, verse 17. In the first month, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It's just some little first. It's a new creation, a new beginning. And when you look at what's made, again, it's very sort of Edenic, very garden-like. And you might think of the, the way it's set up. Anytime they, they moved on and camped, 
It couldn't just bung the tabernacle anywhere that fitted. You know, it works nicely this way. The sun's coming that way. It'd be nice in the morning to have the shade. They always had to set it up the same way. And that was with the entrance to the east. I put the, the compass points on there, I think. Yeah. Why? Because when Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, which way were they driven out? Genesis 3 tells us. They were driven out to the east. You might have heard that expression, east of Eden. It's a novel that name, isn't it? East of Eden. It means life outside of paradise. And in fact, if we were to trace the Genesis story, you'll see that throughout Genesis, from chapter 3 right to the call of Abraham in, in Genesis 12, that the people of God are moving further and further east, or like humanity is moving further and further east, symbolically further and further away from God, until Abraham is called in chapter 12, and he's turned around and he's sent back. In other words, as you come heading west, you're heading back towards God's presence. The direction that is there. Sewn into the curtains, you might know that the entranceway curtains are cherubim. Just as cherubim guarded the east side um, entrance to the Garden of Eden. Remember the cherubim was there with the, the flaming sword. Also too sewn into the entrance of God's house, the cherubim, with flaming swords. The, the, the candlestick is meant to be shaped like a tree. On and on we might go. In fact, when the temple is built, the kind of full-time tabernacle is built, it's decorated with fruit to make it garden-like. All echoes. All echoes of Eden. The tabernacle is a little new creation in the wilderness. Just as Genesis began with this, this sort of wilderness, this chaos as God created. And then he developed this garden, this meeting place for God and man in the middle of the wilderness. Well, so too... Uh, here, uh, we meet God planting, if you like, a garden in the wilderness of Sinai. All of the world under sin, all of the world fallen, all of the world chaos and darkness. But here is a little patch of life, a meeting place between God and man, a little garden of Eden. Exodus ends with God planting the garden of Eden in the wilderness of Sinai. But, but, there's a real problem. We read it from verse 34. The problem comes when God moves in. Verse 34 of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, filled the tabernacle. Now at this stage you might think it was good, isn't it? That's the whole point. That cloud that was up on the top of the mountain has come down. It's going to, God's going to dwell with them. He's not going to stay on Mount Sinai and they leave him behind. He's going to move with them. And it is good in one sense. But the problem comes in the next verse, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God moves in and even Moses has to move out. Now it's hard to think about a sort of higher ranked Old Testament character than Moses, isn't it? If you had to have a big three of the Old Testament, Moses... David, maybe Abraham, I don't know. If Moses can't dwell with God, if Moses has to scarper when God moves in, then there's no chance for the rest of us. He's the one, after all, who was allowed into the glory cloud on Mount Sinai. He's the one who got closest. But now when God draws near, even he has to flee. This is like William not being allowed into Buckingham Palace. If he can't get in, who can? 
so many jokes there, aren't there, about uh, other sons not being allowed in, but I'll leave those for now. Suddenly occurred to me. He can. If William can't get in, at least, he could. So if Exodus ends, you think of it this way, if Exodus ends, it's all pictures, isn't it? If Exodus ends with God planting a garden in the wilderness, the garden of Eden in the wilderness, it also ends with Adam not being able to get it in the garden. There's no man, nobody in the garden. Just God on his own. Or, or to use the language of the text even more tightly, what we have at the end of Exodus is a dwelling place for God, but not a meeting place for God and man. And, and that is there in the text very uh, directly. It's easy to miss. Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 40. On the first day of the first month, God says, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now, those are two separate words. Tabernacle. I'm reading the ESV, by the way, so I guess it might vary in other translations. But the tabernacle and then the tent of meeting, they are different words. The tabernacle is the Hebrew um, dwelling place word. But the tent of meeting is a, is a separate word. Now, it's, don't get me wrong, it's, it's meant to be the same place, okay? It's not two different structures or two different tents or anything like that. It's meant to be that the dwelling place is the meeting place. But so holy is God, so awesome is God that when he moves in, although the tabernacle has become a dwelling place for him, that the question left at the end of Exodus is how on earth can it be a meeting place? That's a question that, that haunts the Old Testament in some ways. Leviticus does bring partial answers. We'll see them in a minute. But think of the Psalms. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 15. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Note the tent and the hill are put together again. And the answer comes, well, he who has a clean heart, he who never... And you're left thinking, not me. If Leviticus teaches us anything, it is that it is an awesome thing to come into the presence of God. You don't wander in lightly. Remember all those memes that came out years ago? Um, uh, Sean B, Lord of the Rings. One does not simply wander into Mordor or whatever the line is, I can't remember. I'm not very good on those kind of films. But you know, you, know the, you know the line, okay? The kind of elves and wizards and whatever else goes on. Hobbits, dwarfs, whatever. One does not simply wander into Mordor or whatever the line is. You kind of wander into God's presence. It's a huge thing. Even Moses can't do it. And so Leviticus is, all, is going to be all about how God's dwelling place can become a meeting place. How God's dwelling place can become a meeting place. And there's two words in Exodus 40 verse 2. How they can talk about the same reality. Now that's lots and lots, I realise, of, sort of fairly heavy scene setting. Um, let's dive into Leviticus and see, we'll see some of the grace that begins to flower, even just in the earliest chapter. So we're going to move to Leviticus 1. Now, if I remember what I put as your headings. There we go. Leviticus is all about. We've done that. The essential offering. Great. There we go. The essential offering. Imaginative. Uh, Leviticus 1 begins, as I've already said, and he called. Now, that, there is grace already. Okay, remember those first words, and he called? Already, perhaps, you're catching a glimpse of why Leviticus is a book of grace. Anti-corn is really good news if you've just seen your great leader driven out. It's not that God has come to destroy. It's not that God doesn't want sinful human beings anymore. God is calling, calling his people back home. 
uh, and over the next few chapters of Leviticus, we'll see how God is sovereign over the way that we come back. It's not up to Moses to come up with a good idea or the Israelites to be inventive. God is going to sovereignly tell them, this is how it's going to work, that you can come back. But God is going to provide the means for coming back into his presence, the, the means for dwelling with his people. And key to it are going to be these offerings. Verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. We'll talk much more about offerings in the, in the second session uh, tomorrow, I guess. But we're going to look at this first one uh, today. I've called it an ascension offering. Um, the ESV calls it a burnt offering all the way through. Um, but literally the word is, the word, every time it says burnt offering, um, if you were translating it really literally, it would be the, the going up offering. Okay, it's the going up word. The reason they translate it burnt is because, as you'll, you'll see, what you do with it is burn it all up. Okay, so the English translators are trying to be helpful, will give you a bit of a clue about kind of how you do it, but, but, but that's not what the word means at all. So almost every commentator on Leviticus says, um, you know, the KJV or the NIV or the ESV call it this, but the word means going up. And they call it different things, the going up offering, whatever. I'm going to call it the ascension offering. It's a bit of a tendency, by the way. I mean, when we get to the second offering, they call it the grain offering in the ESV because it's made of grain. And again, the word just doesn't at all mean grain. It means tribute. More on that tomorrow. So we're going to try and stick with the kind of the slightly more literal translation because I think they help understand us understand what's going on. Two things very very quickly. We'll look at what happens and, and why it's significant. So first of all, what happens with this ascension offering, this going offering? First of all, you choose an animal. Verse three. Uh, we'll stick with the the, uh, the, the example in verses uh, uh, three through seven. Uh, two or three other times in the chapter, it, the process is repeated with kind of essentially a cheaper animal. But it's the same process, so we'll stick with the first one. Um, you choose an animal. Notice what it's got to be. It's got to be a male without blemish, without fault. So it's got to be a son of the herd. And the blameless word there, interestingly, sorry, the word without blemish is the, is the blameless word. So throughout the Bible so far, all the way through Genesis and Exodus, the word has only ever been used of, of moral blamelessness. So Noah is without blemish, blameless. Abraham in Genesis 17 is without blameless. And so if you, again, if you're an Israelite hearing this for the first time, you would hear it and think, what's a blameless animal? Okay, my best behaved goat? I mean, what's, you know, what's going on here? But it's got those moral connotations. We kind of know it's spotless and you, you know, it points to Jesus, all the rest of it. But, so certainly it means one that's not a living pig and it's not even a duff goat. But it's got a male, the son of the herd, obviously who that's putting forward to. Uh, you bring it and you lean on it with one hand. See that verse 4? He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Um, some people think that's kind of as if you're transferring your, si your sin onto the animal. Might be that. It might be saying, look, this animal is going to represent me. Um, it's the kind of thing Bible scholars fight about. The end point is the same. This animal is going to represent me. In fact, I am a sinner. That's why it's going to die. So this animal is now going to represent me, bearing my sin on uh, on it, as it were. Uh, the animal you pick, notice they're all, they're all domestic animals. Okay? It's oxes, rams, you'll always see this. 
ox, ram, bird. It's, it's from our life. You can't go and catch something out in the wilderness, catch a rabbit and sacrifice that. It's coming from your household, from among you. In that sense, it's the closest thing that can represent you without doing human sacrifice. Obviously, human sacrifice is wrong, so you can't actually bring your son. But it's got to be something that comes from your household. And again, you might sort of begin to see how this pictures uh, the true sacrifice that you're offering. Uh, he is one of us. He comes from among us. Lay your hands on it. You kill it. Notice you kill it, not the, not the priest. Um, he shall kill. So you, you verse 5, you're the officer. He, he kills it. The priest collects the blood, pours it on the altar. And there's a slightly strange thing. Uh, the whole thing gets chopped up. The head, verse 8, and the fat. And the fat is the best bit. We kind of pick off the fat, don't we? But the fat's the best bit. Head and the fat, the best bit, goes on the altar. And the other stuff, the entrails, the body, is washed and then put on the altar. And then the whole thing is burnt. That's one of the distinctive things about this offering. It's why the ESV calls it burnt offering. The whole thing is burnt. We'll see in some of the other ones that you eat some or the priest eats some, whatever. But this one, the whole thing is burnt. And then the remains are buried in a clean place. Uh, this is the foundational offering. It's the one offered morning and evening by the priests. Um, it is the kind of the baseline sacrifice. What's going on? Well, one sense is very easy. Verse 4, it makes atonement. Uh, this is the making atonement offering. Covering over the sin. The animal is dying in my place. I'm not going to speak about loads about that now because actually that making atonement is not unique to this offering. We'll see it comes back in two of the others. There are five main offerings. And so what is unique about this one? Each, each offering has its emphasis. It's kind of a special thing. What's unique about this one? Well, there are two unusual things. The name and the fact that it's all burnt up. And the burning word is a word about transforming it into smoke. It's not the kind of destroy it kind of burning word. It's the transforming it into smoke kind of word. And that helps us understand what's going on. This offering is given so that, in the words of verse 3, the, the, the worshipper may be accepted before the Lord. This is the entrance sacrifice, the entrance offering. <coughs> uh, what tells us that? Partly the name. It's a going off offering. Now, where is it offered? It's offered, if you look at your diagram again, on the bronze altar. But it, as it's burnt... Where does it go? It's all burned, transformed into smoke. Where does the smoke go? It goes up, blows into the desert. Yeah, fine. But remember what the tabernacle is, a three-story house, Mount Sinai. So as the smoke goes up from the bronze altar, symbolically it arrives in the room above, which is the holy place, where there is a gold altar full of sweet-smelling incense. And as that incense goes up, it arrives in... The most holy place. It arrives in God's presence. In other words, through this offering, symbolically, the offerer is entering into God's house. And is being met with a welcome. A sweet, smelling aroma. Here is a perfect animal. It goes past the cherubim, bearing the sword and the fire. That's exactly what happens to the animal, isn't it? Remember the cherubim guard at the entrance with a flaming sword? What happens to the animal that represents you? It goes under the sword, it's killed, flayed. 
chopped up and then burnt, sword and fire. And having gone through the sword and fire, it can then enter into God's presence. And it's an offering he loves, a sweet-smelling aroma, pleasing to the Lord, in the words of verse 9. So the animal is you, but you passing through judgment and entering into the presence of the Lord through fire and sword and being welcomed there. How might we kind of apply this just in the last minute or so as we close? Think about Christ, think about us. Think about Christ first. Christ obviously is the one to whom all these offerings and sacrifices point. What has Christ done for you? He has gone under the sword of judgment, through the fires of judgment on the cross. But, but why? Yes, to make atonement. We'll come back to that time and time again. Yes, to make atonement. Your sin has been paid for. But it doesn't end there, does it? He then ascends, end of Luke, or beginning of Acts, he ascends into the Father's presence. He ascends into God's presence. He enters into the most holy place, truly before the Father. And he does so as our representative. He is the head, we are the body. Remember this sacrifice, two parts of it? Head and body. Head first, and then the body had to be washed and, and follows on. But the head first. Also to Christ, who is the head of the body. And the fact that Christ has ascended, has been accepted by God, and now dwells in heaven, is a total guarantee to us, the body, the scuzzy, smelly, monkey entrails that we are, that we too will be accepted, not because of anything in us, but because the head is there already. Hardberg Catechism asks the question, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before the Father. And second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, in other words, his body, up to himself. Christ is not going to be an amputee in heaven. He's not going to lose a limb. The whole body will arrive because the head is there. And so part of the point of the ascension is to reassure you that whatever mess you're making of your life, you have already a head in heaven who is so closely attached to you that the bond is, is, is more powerful, more tight, more close, if you like, than the bond between your head and your body, okay, your arm and your hand. There's great assurance in the fact that he is there. He has ascended into the presence of the Father. Christ and then us. If he's the head, we are the body. Remember the body parts need washing first. Same thing happens to us. We are crucified with Christ, to use Paul's language. But then we're sanctified by the Spirit. We're washed by the Spirit. And that is, the, that is going to be the pattern of your Christian life. Looking to Christ for assurance. He is in heaven. It is done and dusted. But on the journey, as you sort of follow onwards, it's washing until eventually you ascend to to join him at your death or his return. Now, I'm sorry, that, that's just a little touch on, on one way that this first offering points forward to Christ. And what I hope to do in the next, in fact, in the next session is we're going we're to scoot through the other offerings and I hope we'll get this kind of, uh, almost this walk around the diamond of the cross to see the different ways in which Christ 
uh, is pictured. Uh, I hope to, uh, over the next few sessions, that we'll just be able to dig a little bit more deeply into how we can begin to apply this uh, into our hearts and minds. So if that, if that, some of that's felt pretty heavy, man, there's a lot to get in your heads, don't panic too much. Um, we'll sort of we'll lighten up as we go along. But can I pray as we finish? Thanks.